0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, I am a raging insomniac. I don't know if you know this about myself. Depression and insomnia often run together like ugly twins. that kind of go, hand-in-hand, and many of you know that I've struggled with depression for for quite a while, Um, but I'm also a a very, very, very heavy insomniac, and so I don't know what it is about my mind, but even as a kid, it's just wired this way. I can be kind of fatigued throughout the day, and then around 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., when everybody else starts to get sleepy, I start to get focused. This is my time to work. I can very clearly remember being a child And not sleeping at night and pacing the hallways of our darkened house at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. And what's got to be like, I mean, this is a horror scene, movie, I mean. So last week I confessed to you that I laughed creepily in my sleep. Um, So I'm not sure which one is better, the laughing while sleeping or the pacing the halls. Um, Depression, insomnia, these are two different types of darkness, Uh, Two different types of darkness. Uh, And so when it comes to the time of the year where we get an extra hour of sleep, while most people are enjoying that, I'm grabbing my sad lamp. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but we lose an hour, and some of us get a little bit more depressed because we lose that light. And so you have these little lamps that exist. I try to get my my time in with the lamp in the morning and then in the afternoon. But you got to be careful because it can also cause me to have more trouble sleeping. I've got the sad lamp on a little bit later at night. You see, light and darkness go together in a very careful balance, both spiritually and physically, naturally, regularly. You need both of them to survive. Sometimes maybe we don't think about the fact that we need darkness. Just as human beings, as a species, we need darkness. Um, It's hard maybe for us to even understand how different the world is that we live in after the invention of electricity now that we can manipulate our world and have light at any time. Um, and it is difficult for us to really sometimes understand um, the biological, physical, psychological effects that our lights have on us. And so, I don't know if you know, there's such a thing as light pollution. Um, and there's scientists who study the effects of, uh, on animals of light pollution. And then there are other scientists, doctors, and psychologists who study the effects on humans of light pollution. Um, and so your your body, right, your your brain wasn't built to determine the difference necessarily between the sun and your cell phone. And so we know this, right? Your, your cell phone, the light it produces, or a computer, or even an alarm clock, they all have the same amount of light and frequency and all that stuff needed to make a biological response in your body happen, thinking that the sun is about to come up. And so your Adrenaline starts to pump, your melatonin stops being produced, your human growth hormone gets stop being made, which helps you repair and, and regrow while you're sleeping, all these things. And, and if you've ever struggled to sleep, you maybe have read about some of these things, because it's a balance. We need the darkness. We, we need it to be dark, to be healthy, to be whole, to be well. Even though the darkness can be scary, and it can be confusing, and sometimes in the darkness we get hurt, it's an important part of our lives. And I want to wonder out loud this morning, what if, just what if, spiritual darkness is also important for our well-being? We're in an Advent sermon series right now uh, called Shadow Talk, and, and we're, we're talking about the season of Advent, which began last week. It's four weeks before Christmas begins, and it's a season where Christians are called to prepare themselves to celebrate. The coming of Jesus. They're called to um, think about what it means to wait on God to act. They're, think to, they're, they're called to reflect on the things of God. And, and we live in a culture that kind of jumps from celebration to celebration and celebration. And so Advent is a time where it's kind of asking us to stay buckled in for just a little bit longer. And everything around us is saying, let's celebrate, let's do Christmas, let's do Christmas. And Advent goes, let's also think about the darkness. Last week we we started the series and we said darkness, this is the proper context for Advent. When Jesus comes into the world, Jesus is described as a light and the light comes into the darkness. And the people who receive the original Christmas message were told in Isaiah, the passage we looked at last week, they were people who have dwelt in deep darkness. Darkness is a, a physical and a spiritual condition that affects human beings. Last week, using the the work of a scholar named Barbara Brown Taylor, we, we talked about two different types of spiritualities, a solar spirituality and a lunar spirituality. And most of us would like to live in a solar spirituality, it's just going from sunlight to sunlight to sunlight, right? From party to party to party, from joy to joy to joy, from fun to fun to fun. But she said that's not necessarily healthy for us and not necessarily the truth of human experience. She said in her experience, and mine as well, it's more of a lunar type situation. She, she says, my spirituality is more, it's more like the moon. It's brighter at some times than others. I can see more clearly at some times than others. I can never quite predict it or control it. You know, the sun is the same and for the most part every day and very bright. The, the moon is different every night and there are different levels of illumination. And so last week we, we just started out by, by wondering, what if there are things that happen in the times where we walk in shadows? in the times where we're in darkness and grief and pain and doubt and confusion in our lives, that God uses to bless us in mysterious ways? What what if there are things that happen in the darkness that help us mature and develop as human beings and as Christians in a way that could only happen in the darkness? And this morning, as we continue this series, I want to get a little more specific. I want to look at what I think is one of the key ways that God blesses us in times of darkness. And so to do so, we're going to have a partner with us, and that partner comes from the book of Psalms. So I want to invite you to turn to the book of Psalms with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback that is probably underneath the seat around you, and you're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip open with us. In the black hardback, it'll be page 469, Psalm 42. It's a fairly well-known psalm. If, if you're familiar with the, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, it was it was written by someone in the shadows. This is a shadow psalmist. He gives us some, some shadow talk here to, to analyze and to think about. It, it reads like this, Psalm 42, we'll pick it up in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? You know you're in the shadows when your tears are mocking you. (laughs) These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I love this about the psalm that he, he's talking to himself now. In the midst of this pain and hurt, the situation that he's in, this shadow land that he is walking through, he's, he's, he's engaging some self-talk. But note that it's not cheap or magical. We know that because the next verse, my soul is cast down within me. This is not just an incantation he recites to himself, and it fixes everything. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep, calls the deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. That refrain, he repeats it. It's repeated again in Psalm 43. We think these two Psalms went together originally. It's a sad song that he's singing, and yet the chorus here is the self-talk, hope in God. I love that he is curious about his darkness. I think oftentimes we are so scared of negative emotions, shadows, darkness, that we do whatever we can to numb or distract or ignore them. And instead, perhaps it'd be healthier for us to become curious about them to ask them questions, ask yourself questions. Oftentimes, I think we're afraid of what is at the end of that path, and yet it still might be the right thing to do to ask, well, why am I afraid? Why Why is my soul cast down? Again, this is no magical formula for fixing things, but this is perhaps a faithful way to walk when one finds themselves in the shadow. Just in this psalm, you can, you can get a sense for where the author is that emotionally and spiritually the way they describe God? He, he, he seems to suggest that God's absent. He doesn't know where to find God. Where can I go and be in, in God's presence? I don't know if you've ever experienced that feeling. He asked at one point, Why has God forgotten me? There are two ways of feeling small in the world there's one way where you're laying down at night and you see the stars and, and you're kind of in awe. And then there's another way where you feel like you're just forgotten. Who who could possibly care or remember? This is this is where he's at in the moment or she's at in the moment. The the author feels like God's abandoned them to defeat. He's he's given me over to my adversaries. They taunt me and mock me. And note even in this hard place, something is happening in his heart that leads him towards God that leads him to desire God so this is not a stream of consciousness poem Psalm 42 is what we have what we just read together is probably not some person sitting down and this is just the first thing that ever came out of their hands and they walked away from it and it just so happened to be one of the 150 greatest spiritual poems ever written and kept in our Bible for years and years and years and years this is a person who's composed their thoughts thought it through they've thought about how they want to present their thoughts And so this first verse, when he says, my soul pants for you like a deer pants for water, this is, I think, a result of his situation. It's because his soul is so cast down that this desire has been created. It's because he doesn't know where to go and find God that he's seeking him, that he's knocking on every door and he's turning over every rock. It's because he can't seem to find this place of hope that he knows should be his that he asks himself these questions and reminds himself who God is and and what God is like. I think this is the case in the shadows, in times of darkness. It often serves as a paradoxical, as a unique way of God blessing us, as a way of God increasing our attention, as a way of a way of God drawing our desire for and towards him into more strength and more passion. One of the gifts of time spent in the darkness, and the one that I want to talk about this morning, is the gift of unknowing. It's what one author called holy ignorance. I want to to argue that sometimes darkness is an opportunity for God to give you holy ignorance, and that this might be one of the best gifts that you might ever receive. In my experience as a Christian, just as a Christian, especially as a pastor, much of the Christian life involves walking down a path of unknowing. It involves enrolling in a school where we get rid of things that we thought. We get rid of assumptions that we picked up along the way. We let go of things that we were taught at some point in our life. We all have these ideas about God. We have these feelings, gut assumptions about God. And in my experience, a large part of Christian life is deconstructing those, thinking them through. Which ones are right? Which ones are wrong? Why do I believe this? Why do I feel this way? Where does this come from? Does this serve me well? Does this serve my neighbors and my family well? Is this healthy? Is this toxic? And often, if things are going well in life, if you're in a solar season, light, fun, happiness, It's often difficult to reflect. It's often hard to really do that work of what do I believe, what am I thinking, is it right, is it wrong, how can I take it apart and put it back together and look at it from this way and that way. It's usually when we're poked. It's when we're prodded. It's when the light dims a bit that we start asking these questions, that we start looking for these resources. And it can turn into, I think, one of the biggest blessings um, that you and I can receive. For many of us, the process of coming to think and speak about God is bound up inseparably with unlearning deep, deeply grained opinions about him, assumptions about him. Raise your hand, just, we'll we'll be honest here, because we trust one another. Raise your hand if you ever thought something about God later on, you were like, I'm not so sure that's true anymore. Yeah, you see, we've all gone to this school before, and I think sometimes the the darkness is like the AP course. And thinking through, what is God like? What is God up to? How am I involved in that? We're blessed in a way that we otherwise wouldn't. There's a Christian theologian, Meister Eckhart, and he has a prayer that is going to sound blasphemous, so stay with me. But it goes like this. His request is, he says to God, God, rid me of God. And as this gets kind of fleshed out, you might add parentheses to try to understand what he's getting at. and It would come out to a prayer like this. God, parentheses, as you really are, rid me of God, parentheses, as I imagine you are. Strip me of all my illusions. Strip me of all my wrong assumptions. Strip me of the desires that aren't right, beliefs that aren't true, of the ways that I am perhaps using my faith or belief to try to manipulate you or get a certain outcome or or goal happen in my life. There's a, a gentleman, there's a man actually, who's known for being a master of this school of unknowing. Uh, St. John of the Cross. I don't know if you're familiar with St. John. He was a 16th century monk, and he wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. Um, and it's been so influential that for many people, particularly in the Christian community, it's kind of become part of our vocabulary. We use this to describe a time where God feels absent to us, like much like the psalmist here in Psalm 42. Um, he has a very interesting story. Um, so he worked very closely with uh, a nun, Teresa of Avila, And she was just a powerhouse, an awesome woman, and the monastery order that she was involved with, um, they were built on the ideals of simple living and solitude and prayer, but as things happened, their company, their order, their group kind of started to devolve a little bit, and she kind of saw like, hey, we're not doing things the right way, and so she started to reform and start a new order, And she had been praying for quite a while for a male ally to come along and help her in this and to eventually start a a male monastery for monks and enters into the scene St. John. We call St. John of the Cross. He was a little guy, under five feet tall. Apparently, Teresa, the first time she met him, said she had met half of a friar. (laughs) So a ladies' man, St. John. And as it happens, when you buck the system... It doesn't go unnoticed. And so the people in charge, the powers that be, they were opposed to what Teresa and St. John were doing. And one night, a few men broke into St. John's room and they took him away with another one of his brothers and they blinded him and bound him and put him in a monastery prison. And they spent a couple months there in solitary confinement, didn't bathe. Wasn't allowed to change his clothes. Only came out of the cell to experience what they called circular flogging. The monks just got in a circle and and flogged him. Um, He had been ordered by his superiors to quit working with Teresa, and he had refused their order, and in a weird way, now become an outlaw of his very own order of, of monastery. And then he spent a few months in a cell, a different cell by himself, 11 months total, and in that cell, he started to write a book. At the time, he, he didn't have access to paper or pen or anything like that, and so he actually started writing this book by memorizing the words in the dark. And then later on, he escapes and goes to Spain, and he finishes writing down what he learns in the dark. And it's called The Dark Night of the Soul. And if you've not read it, and I'm, I'm guessing most of us haven't, it's, it's really not that accessible in terms of, of ancient literature, um, it would probably surprise you what, what is in there. You would think it's a memoir of the tough time he went through, but it really doesn't read much like that. It reads like a very passionate, almost sensual love story, pursuing the most elusive lover of, of all. And, and John paints a picture of the struggle that he went through as part of a story of God kind of seducing him of God drawing him further and further into love. John understands the the dark night that he went through as a way of God stripping away all of his illusions, taking everything away from him one by one by one until all he had left was God himself. And as St. John says, he came to realize that sometimes it's when God seems the farthest away that he's actually the nearest to you. A weird paradox. Perhaps there's a blessing to be found in the darkness. Perhaps that blessing has something to do with unknowing. There's a lot of things that sometimes we think about God that maybe aren't correct or maybe are distorted just quite a bit. And we definitely don't know as much about God as I think we think we do. One of the things John engages with is, is called theology of negation or apophatic theology. It's, it's a way of talking about what God is not rather than what God is. Um, and most of what we do with God, we just make affirmations about God. Um, and so we say God is love, right? God is wise. We're, we're talking about things we, we are confident about saying that are true about God. There's another way of doing theology, though, which is the opposite. It's to say, let's list off all the things God's not. And if you go down this path... Which I think is fruitful, and some of our, our most contemplative, beautiful mystics in Christian history have done so, although it's a little hypocritical for me as a career, right, for me to solely do this. I speak a lot, very confidently, about things that I think are true about God, but it is a helpful strategy sometimes to sit down and think, what, what all do we not know about God? Because the list is much longer. God is much more different than, than we are. God is infinite. God is, 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 is much more hidden than we'd like to think. And so much of what we think or feel about God is cultural or personal or is is off base in one way or another. Even the things we know about God, you can look at them in a negative way. So not negative in a bad connotation, just negative in a, this is something that's not true. So we know that God is wise, but God is also not wise like Mike, which is good news for you. We know that God is love, but we also know that God is not like any type of love that we have experienced, or that human beings are able to participate in on their own accord of their own effort and their own nature. For John, this this time of struggle was a way for God to strip away what he saw as things he was clinging to instead of God. John said sometimes ideas about God we use those to grasp onto instead of grasping onto God himself or fears about God or ways we think we can manipulate God. These are kind of addictions that we have in our lives and if we were to really examine ourselves, this is really what we're holding on to not God and God himself and, and, and the darkness, the shadow lands. One of the things they do and they do really well is they, they just strip you of all of that. This is something you find throughout Christian history if you, if you look for it. Scholars of, of all different denominations and times. Gregory of Nyssa says, those who wish to draw near to God shouldn't be surprised when your vision gets cloudy. That's a sure sign that you're approaching the unique splendor of God. St. Augustine, if you have understood, then what you have understood is not God. <laughs> Nicholas of Cusa is who I referenced earlier. He called it holy ignorance. It's a path of unknowing, That doesn't lead you to abandon your faith. It's a, it's a holy ignorance. is It's a divine gift given to those who are willing to embrace all that they don't know and can't know and and maybe will never know. And there are a few ways that, that I think this this happens in our lives. There there are reasons I think John's answer that the dark night ultimately is God's gift to you for your freedom is is correct. It frees us from our ideas about God, from our fears about God, from our attachments to the benefits we think come with believing in God, to our positive and our negative evaluations of our own performance as believers, our tactics for manipulating God. For John and others, these are substitutes. They get in the way of God, of holding on to him. And God turns the lights off in order to keep us safe. For John, we're never more in danger of stumbling than we, when we think we see perfectly. So just real quickly, let me, let me walk through maybe a couple examples of, of how this might work out. We could, we could say this about God. God is not existent in the universe. God is not one of the things that exist. Now, again, I'm going to quote St. Aquinas here. He's a scholar, medieval theologian, one of the top doctors of the church. Going to sound like blasphemy. Stay with me. Point, Aquinas says, God does not exist. And he then goes on to say, God himself simply is existence. The idea is that God is not one agent or actor in the world among other agents and actors in the world. Like if I had a chalkboard up here and I drew a circle that was existence and a bunch of different X's in it, and there were different colors and different sizes, we might then say, okay, this is you and this is me and these are the animals and this is the world, and then we would just draw the biggest X in the middle and say, that's God. Theologians would say, no, 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 no. God's not one thing among a bunch of other things. He's not one actor among a bunch of other actors. He's not the biggest X among a whole bunch of littler X's in different sizes and shapes. In this analogy, God would be the chalkboard. He would be the chalk. He would actually be the act of drawing these X's. God himself is existence. The scriptures would use language like this. In him we have our being. In him we move and live and breathe. He upholds all things by the power of his will. This is why we have a hard time in conversations when it when it comes to trying to determine what God does and then the level of freedom humans have. Because we assume God's freedom has to be in competition with our freedom. Because that's how it works if we're all in the same circle. If there are two X's in the circle, they can both share, I guess, 50%. I can lift half the weight, you can lift half the weight, but we can't overlap. But God is is the very ground of existence himself. So here's what this means, If if we can acknowledge this, that God is not just another person like we are persons in the world. Here's what this means. God cannot withdraw from the world the way that you or I can withdraw. God cannot disappear the way you or I can disappear. And certainly our feelings or our situations can't make these things true. It does not cheapen our feelings or situations. And it doesn't even mean that that language can't be useful. It's in the scriptures. But it means in the darkness where we question where is God, where can he be found, we might eventually be led to understanding that well, God is wherever I am, even if it's the darkness. There's there's not one portion of the world that's called darkness that God has just given over to some other power. Christians, we believe that God is present everywhere. Omnipresence. But what we mean by that is, is, again, not that God can be present everywhere and not that a portion of God is present everywhere. Like if we had a balloon and we filled it up in this room, big enough so that, like, you had one side of the balloon, you had the other side of the balloon, back of the balloon, the balloon was up here. We all had a piece of the balloon, right? It was big enough. Sometimes we think that's, like, God, and God is everywhere, and, like, some of us get the face of God, and then I guess some others get the butt of God, but, but I mean, it's just big enough. It's like the big blimp. Everyone, everyone is able to be in his presence. No, Christians believe God is fully present everywhere. So in the hospital, in the birthing unit, God is fully present, the face of God. In the terminal cancer wing, God is present, fully present, the face of God. Around a good meal with friends and laughter, God is present. At the end of an argument with broken glass on the floor and tears on your face, God is present. God is not one thing like you and I, we could look at another example. We often, in a similar way, talk about God's activity. So we'll say God is present or not present, and we'll also talk about God being active or not active. And again, I'm not saying this language is not sometimes useful, and I'm not sometimes the language Scripture uses very clearly. But in the Scriptures, I think if if we're going to, again, continue this type of thinking, understand that God's not one agent among other agents, we have to understand that, that God is always acting. The very fact that you and I are existing right now means God is acting. There is no existence without his intentional upholding of our little molecules staying together. The very fact that we're thinking and neurons are firing and your lungs are going in and out, this all means God is at work. Another psalmist will say, "There's nowhere you're, you're not going to be able to find the escape room where God is not allowed in, where God's not present. Now again, there will be times where God doesn't feel present. But perhaps that's an invitation for you to look for ways that he's present that you maybe otherwise would never have looked for. Ways for you to experience him in a manner that you otherwise would have never looked for. You see, we we often expect God's activity to conform to our beliefs about what his activity should be like. And so, really, a lot of times when we we think that God's not active, what we really mean is God's not active in the way I'm prescribing for him to be active. And this is true about a lot of our beliefs with God, myself included. Um, One of the temptations, I think, that is given to human beings is not disbelief, it's Strong belief with a slight, under, slight misunderstanding. So, I want to read you a quote from uh, a scholar, Chris Green, and I just want to read it to you because he says it so well, I don't want to even paraphrase it. He says this, though Perhaps this is where we too often find ourselves, believing strongly but in misunderstandings of God's word. So, follow this. We trust God as provider, we believe this. We trust God as provider, but Green says, but we rely on our own sense of need. So I go, yeah, I believe that God is my provider, but I'm not giving him a say in what I need him to provide for me. I've got my own list of needs. I'll handle that part of the equation, and now I can say he is or isn't providing for me. Instead of saying, well, maybe God knows the needs more than I do. We trust God as provider, but we assume that we can rely on our own sense of need. He says, we trust God as healer, but we don't know what health is. We trust God as deliverer and protector, but we expect that deliverance to come on our own terms and in our own time. In these ways, and countless others, he says, we move from frustration to frustration to disappointment to disappointment, not because God is unfaithful, simply because we're relying on our own understanding. God is not One thing among other things. God is not one power among other powers. He's present and he's active. Even in ways that maybe you had never imagined or never thought could be true or could be at work. The last thing we could explore together this morning is just a way of of example, this this path of unknowing, we could we could think about the, the fact that God is not constrained. God has no obligations. God has no needs. He's not needy. When God creates, he does so, Christians say, ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of pure will and love and desire. And this is really good news for us because a needy God can be bargained with. A needy God could offer a reward. A needy God would at best offer us a salvation that has ulterior motives. He needs something from it. But a God who needs nothing is a God who can teach us to be truly dependent and thrive in understanding our dependence on him. A God who truly needs nothing is a God who we can trust to do what he said he's going to do. A God who truly needs nothing is a God who we can trust to fully give of himself. Is a God who we can put our hope in and, and believe is full of steadfast love at all times. He's not vulnerable to manipulations. Because he has no needs, we can trust his promise. We can accept everything that he is and all that he does as a gift. When you're in the shadows, the dark night of the soul, darkness, whatever you want to call it, oftentimes the overriding feeling is the lack of God's presence and activity and provision. What if it's the case that this is really just an opportunity for you to be stripped, for you to have these addictions and obstacles, these false or distorted beliefs taken away? What if it's the case that the shadows are the training ground where you can learn to let go of everything that's not really God and exit grasping God and only God, not what you think you might get as a benefit from God, not what you think you might deserve from God. I can I can very clearly remember like three years into ministry, being really upset about something, kind of a dark night of the soul situation, and, and having this internal monologue with God that went something like this, like, I gave you my life, and this is what I get in return. Fashion myself a pretty smart guy, I was going to go to a different college, going to get a much higher-paying degree, going to have a good life. Now I'm preaching to high schoolers, I'm getting paid 30 bucks a week. And then, right, over a series of days, I start to realize how silly that is, how arrogant that is. I started to realize God didn't have a file with that contract in there somewhere. <laughs> what needed to happen was was not me being honest about how I felt. It was not me expressing it. It was not me experiencing it. What needed to happen was for there to be a time and a place and a reason for me to have to see and recognize that false contract. and Rip it up in my own heart. And then on the other side of that shadow, I come out a little closer to God, which is the biggest blessing that any one of us could ask for. Some of us right now are in the shadows or in in a dark time. I know it. I'm very open with you. You know that I'm, I'm more than most probably in dark times. This is hard-won hard wisdom. This is, this is difficult to, to, to walk in to live out. But it's something to cling to. And, and the great truth about this school of unknowing is you don't have to be in the shadows to, to do it, right? In the light, if you're in the light right now, you're like, don't bring me down today, I'm doing okay. You can still be prompted to examine your beliefs, to examine your actions, to think through, are there things that I'm grasping instead of grasping God? And so this morning, I invite you to contemplate and to join in Eckhart's prayer. That God, as he really is, would rid us of God as we imagine him to be. And in so doing, we would be so richly blessed and be able to be such a rich blessing to the world around us.